We would like to welcome our listeners to the podcast series Who's Universal, which we are hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference at Austerkultur und der Welt in Berlin. My name is Anna Tesherapintu, and I'm co-organizing the White West Conference together with Kader Atia and Ansam Frank. Our guests today are Felix Stalder and Florian Kremer. Felix Stalder is Professor for Digital Culture at the Zurich University of the Arts. His work deals with the intersection of cultural, political, and technological dynamics, and most saliently, with new modes of commons-based production, control society, copyright, and transformation of subjectivity. He is a member of the Technopolitics Working Group, based in Vienna, and among his most recent publications is the book The Digital Condition, which came out with Polity Press in 2018. Florian Kremer is professor for 21st century visual culture at Willem de Koenig Academy in Rotterdam. He is specialized in autonomous practices and has been involved in numerous research projects, such as Making Matters, Bridging Art, Design and Technology Through Material Practice. He is also engaged in filmmaking and radio programming. Among his recent publications, one finds Pattern Discrimination, a book co-edited with Clemens Abrich, Wendy Ui, Queen Shun, and Ito Steil in 2018. Welcome, Felix Stauder and Florian Kramer. And uh, perhaps uh, we could start uh, by uh, discussing a bit uh, the uh, question of non-fungible tokens, uh, cryptocurrencies, and blockchain. And uh, I would be interested in your thoughts and what kind of like social forms do private currencies engender or in what way does privatized monetary creation change the structure of society or uh, more precisely uh, what kind of nexus or what kind of correlations could we see you see between cryptocurrencies and uh, questions like golf corp or opt-in societies as new forms of governmentality. Maybe I can chime in with um, Devil's Advocate uh, statement. Uh, Anna, if you speak of privatized money generation or uh, private money, then maybe we have to nuance it in the way that this is, has already been happening in the traditional financial system. Yeah? So uh, the way money is being generated right now is through private banks. Um, uh, through giving uh, credits, which then ultimately is is, is backed by by uh, reserve banks, uh, but still, actually, um, there is a long history also of private money. Uh, I mean, even if, if you extend the notion of of money, so for example, something like buying a voucher, let's say buying buying a voucher for getting a book in a bookstore or uh, an entrance ticket uh, at the cinema when when uh, there is no uh, pandemic, uh, these are also forms of private money. So there there have been many forms of of, of uh, uh, private money. So that in itself is not new. And if you want to be, let's say, really um, skeptical, then you could also say what's now happening with the non-fungible tokens in a way is very comparable to trading cards. Um, it's like a trading card economy that, that that is being pimped up. And this is exactly also where art comes into play. But it's just a short remark before we really go seriously into the topic, because I know it's a difficult topic, especially for listeners who are not uh, in it. It, it sounds very cryptic, and so it's cryptocurrency for a reason. Uh, 
Yeah, I think I mean part of the of the appeal is this story about everything is new. This is a totally unprecedented uh, uh, territory, so everything we learned so far is no longer applicable. That's part of a longer kind of story of digital technology that constantly um, kind of devalues experience, that constantly devalues uh, critique and constantly claims that uh, law of histories, of economics, of uh, you know power and all of that are suddenly disappearing in, in, in favor of something totally new. Um, but there are a number of things that are quite new. Um, I mean, there have been a lot of, uh, you know, private forms of money, uh, even though, I mean, what Florian said, the banks are creating uh, money. I would say this is kind of semi-private. You, you see that with banking crisis and suddenly the state swoops in and uh, bails out all the banks. It's just a profit of creating money is, is private. So this is a very well-established kind of public, you know, private-public partnership. What is happening now with cryptocurrencies is really an attempt to create a, pri a fully private currency. And that goes beyond kind of traditional private monies, as, as Florian uh, mentioned that. And it's kind of closer to um, experiments uh, that happened maybe in 1930s or or you know, it is local currencies that really try to replace money as a general uh, purpose, uh, you know, store of value and means of payment. And that is now uh, happening on a, on a global scale. That at least is, is, is kind of the, the idea or the direction. Whether this is actually what's happening is, is, another, is another question. But now we have for the first time uh, a non-local fully private uh, money that is not bank, not backed either by the state or by an entity that is heavily regulated and supported um, by the state itself. So I think there is something quite new to it uh, that doesn't invalidate a lot of experience we have, but it's, it's a different ball game, even it has some uh, similarities to other previous forms of private monies. But then, Felix, I have a question. Um, yes, I mean, if he's speaking about money in the sense of a currency, but for example, if you look at uh, money, for example, in the form of metals, of gold or silver, right? Couldn't we argue that this has always been private? This has always been outside state regulation because basically whoever could mine gold or silver then was part of this currency it also works pretty much universally because uh, you, you have a global gold or silver price and and uh, this way you can trade and this is also where the original inspiration of course as we know uh, for cryptocurrencies come from to create something like digital gold right that that was the idea that that was also came out of a libertarian um, uh, critique towards so-called fiat money, so uh, towards towards uh, banks and central banks creating money. Um, then the idea actually to uh, to implement the model of scarcity that is in in metals and and uh, uh, use cryptography to kind of implement scarcity in the digital uh, sphere. Right um, now. Of course, we need to debunk this. Right, uh, 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 cryptocurrencies are not gold; they are not silver. 
um, um, the, the, this is part of their ideology that there is something like digital gold. But this is also the, the point I think where, where art comes in as a commodity because art is being traded on the same uh, uh, grounds of um, actually a commodity, a commodity of exchange also a commodity that is also completely private, that is also not regulated by, uh, uh, by um, uh, financial, uh, most financial laws, uh, banking laws, etc., etc. Um, I don't want to go into too, too many details uh, there, but if you actually look, for example, at the kind of pre-cryptocurrency art trade, for example, of artists like Damien Hirst, you see the same patterns uh, that, that you now see in, in the uh, trade of cryptocurrencies. Uh, there's a great documentary which I can recommend everyone listening to this podcast by Ben Lewis. It's called uh, The Great Contemporary Art Bubble, where he basically analyzes and deconstructs um, how the art market works and how rigged it is. You know, where it's basically a system of, of a Ponzi scheme of insider trade, and, and, and that's repeating now. So my suggestion, my tentative question would be, or suggestion would be to also look at, at, let's say, the use of commodities like silver or gold or art as kind of protoforms of this privatized global money system. Yes, and um, on that note, if I may go back a little bit to, before we start uh, talking about non-fungible tokens and crypto art, uh, I wanted to ask you if you could unpack a little bit this history that uh, goes all the way back to ordo-liberalism because uh, I uh, am very interested in this fixation, for instance, in uh, gold and the question of value. You know, like the question of value insofar as value is always seen um, as something that has to be um, legitimated by, uh, you know, like a substance that supposedly or allegedly is not, uh, you know, like um, manipulated, manipulatable, or you know, it's not something that one can speculate in. And I uh, wanted to tie this to something that David Colombia, with uh, whom you also have been uh, in Vienna, uh, said about cryptocurrency, which is that um, it's a technology with social and political functions far outstrip its technical ones because economically speaking uh, is the answer to the wrong question. Since the problems with value fluctuations are not formal but political, they cannot be solved by software engineering. And so uh, basically Bitcoin, for instance, is not, uh, is, is not a currency really, it's a financial instrument. But uh, the question also that I wanted to bring into the discussion is how there's an ideology that correlates to Bitcoin, which is uh, something that has or, or is connected to this deep-seated anxieties about, uh, you know, like the, uh, who owns the control over like the creation of money and uh, this anti-Semitic creep that always comes together with these anxieties. And uh, that is marked by this putative uh, illegitimacy or unnaturalness even of, uh, you know, like uh, fiat money. You know, the, the conventional definition of money has always three uh, dimensions. One is a unit of account, so you can make equivalences of value. Uh, the other, the second one is a store of value, so that you can keep value and it doesn't, you know, diminish and you know rot away or whatever and the third is um <clears throat> uh you know a means of exchange right and depending on how you um particularly the store of value versus the means of exchange uh, argument uh, how you value that you you get to different monetary designs uh, 
And um, cryptocurrencies like uh, gold that uh, Florian mentioned already is really the idea of um, store of value. So it's kind of a rentier's logic that you want your money not only to not depreciate, so no inflation, but you actually want your assets to increase in value over time. And, and that is built into uh, cryptocurrencies by design. That's the idea. And uh, in order to do that, you, you need to a fixed amount of money that can be created. So there's 21 million Bitcoins uh, that can be mined. And uh, you need some what, what, what they call proof of work. So it's difficult to do that. And then when you own that, it, it kind of uh, augments in value and, and you can hoard the money. That, that's kind of the, the logic. And the, and, and the other logic is kind of uh, what to, to some degree uh, central banks are trying to. They want to keep the money flowing in the economy. So, so their ideal is, is an inflation rate of 2%. That's what they always say, which means don't keep the money just on your mattress, do something with it, you know, buy something, go out, keep it in circulation. And, and, and cryptocurrencies in particular are really uh, a kind of a rentier economy approach. You really want to keep your assets valuable. But Sorry, Felix, aren't we here um, uh, mixing up Bitcoin and its particular design in particular with cryptocurrencies in, in, in general? Because there is no rule that a cryptocurrency is limited like, like uh, uh, Bitcoin is, so that there's a fixed amount of maximum Bitcoins that can be mined. Uh, that doesn't have to be. You can also uh, uh, create a cryptocurrency that is unlimited. And I just tried to look it up uh, on Ethereum, on the Ether, currency on the Ethereum blockchain. I don't know whether there's actually a cap. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether anyone knows more about this. It seems to be a little bit unclear, actually. I, I saw that they in initially had a kind of capped offering, but then they extended it. So, so it's not necessarily that, that any cryptocurrency needs to be like this. But of course, it came because it, the, the original designs of cryptocurrency uh, came from cyber libertarianism and, and came from people who distrusted uh, the banks and distrusted uh, uh, inflation. Uh, and it has been, let's say, an old kind of hacker cultural thing, for example, not uh, to, to have a bank account or uh, plastic money, but have silver coins. That's this is an old uh, tradition in, in, in hacker culture. And basically then, then translate that tradition, that, that, that attitude towards money, towards, towards a digital currency, yeah, indeed. And Florian, could you perhaps maybe like tie this to this uh, surge of like conspiracy theories that also have like an anti-Semitic content? Because this is something that is very salient nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think also to pour some more water into the wine, political wine is for me um, a, a kind of key moment was actually the Occupy movement um, in New York. And I happened to be there. Purely by coincidence, uh, I, I was in New York in the first or second week of, of, of uh, Occupy NYC. And what you could literally see is, um, well, let's say retrospectively, retroactively, Occupy has been framed as this left-wing movement. But it, at least in the beginning, it really wasn't. It was a totally mixed bag. Yeah? It, you could almost say it's almost like the corona denier movement where you had left-wingers and right-wingers standing literally on the same uh, square. And yet libertarians uh, in it. You had people from the extreme right, like from the Lyndon LaRouche uh, uh, movement. I, 
met them myself, so I can definitely say this is not hearsay. Uh, and and you, you had Marxists, uh, uh, you have leftists, but let's say that the kind of unifying narrative was very understandably after the financial crisis of uh, uh, 2008, 2009, a complete distrust in the financial system and in the banking system. And, and then basically also the idea, um, so how do we create an alternative system? And, and the ideas um, were not really unified. Yeah? Um, you had left-wing ideas and you had right-wing ideas. Um, uh, for example, um, Felix mentioned the, you could say, the libertarian idea of distrusting uh, the banking system and the fiat money by uh, creating the equivalent of gold or yeah, rentier uh, uh, economy. But in the same movement, you also had people who said, um, um, and partly also with anti-Semitic uh, uh, backgrounds, um, uh, you don't have to, to, you have to completely eliminate um, uh, the this, uh, um, storage of value. And there you have, a, what's his name, Silvio Xer. Um, he was, I think, a South Tyrolean um, um, activist and experimental economist who uh, introduced a currency that would lose its value so that people have to spend it so that it becomes purely uh, a medium of economic change and cannot be used for, for storage of value. And then, you know, you have the, the anti-Semitic meme of the so-called Judah's interest, right? Um, so like the Jewish economy of, of um, uh, interest and, and rent that increases value where there is no value. And then the so-called uh, Judah's penny who grows in value like uh, two trillions of, of, of dollars uh, over the course of the century if you kept it, which of course is nonsense because there have been so many inflations and economic collapses so that any kind of money you would have from the Middle Ages would completely have lost its money unless you would have reinvested it somewhere else. So yes, I mean, uh, this is uh, my historically, as we know, this goes, goes uh, also back uh, to the uh, religious taboo on uh, taking interest on, on uh, money, particularly in Christianity, um, which uh, then uh, led to the effect that actually a banking and financial system based on interest um, uh, was practiced uh, by, by Jewish people because they didn't have the same uh, religious uh, taboo, uh, which is also the reason why first banking uh, uh, families, for example, in Germany, like the Rothschilds in, in Frankfurt were Jewish. Um, and, and that in turn, triggered the whole kind of anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy system of the Jewish world uh, elite that controls uh, the financial system, et cetera, et cetera. And, and basically money being itself, fiat money being part of that, 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 that conspiracy. Uh, so that makes it also very problematic uh, to, um, yeah, to kind of untangle this mess, you know, if, if you want to, to have a kind of critical take on, on uh, economies and on financial systems that very soon you can get into these kind of market territories of conspiracy theories or conspiracy fantasies, I should say, but other theories. But I think at the core um, of, of the kind of social demographic that, that actually drives uh, cryptocurrencies, and I mean particularly Bitcoin and Ether, uh, is really a, a hard techno-libertarian uh, view. Uh, how much of that is also anti-Semitic? And uh, there's certainly an overlap of that. Uh, we know that. But I think that the driving part is really this idea that you can create kind of this pure market for everything. And there also the kind of these uh, non-fungible tokens and, and the art system comes in. That this is another area 
where that you can financialize, so to speak, and where all kind of value there are, because there are you know different kinds of values we have can be expressed through financial value. So this is in in a way this uh, part of a of a culture that sees all human relationships as market relationships and all market relationships as financial exchange relationships. And it's a, in, a, in a way an incredible uh, flipped view of the world and of human interchange. But maybe this is also a point where we need to explain uh, to listeners to this podcast what actually what libertarianism or cyber libertarianism is, because it is my experience, you know, if you are into this matter or in internet culture, like we are now for 20 years, then it's like second nature. But for many people, it is not also because the notions or the definitions of what is libertarianism differ quite a lot between, you know, the traditional European uh, definition of libertarianism and the American concept of libertarianism. So um, as a European and maybe as a listener, even maybe someone, uh, people, listeners here who have grown up, I don't know, in the squatters movement or in the radical left movement, they, they still might associate libertarianism with anarchism, even with uh, left-wing anarchism, because that was the... the original uh, term libertarian was actually for left-wing anarchism. People like Bakunin, for example, or uh, Kropotkin were libertarians. But um, the, in the USA, um, the term shifted its meaning. Um, it still had some anarchist legacy, but became something more right-wing, you could say, uh, like something like hyper-ultra Uh, neoliberalism, uh, a neoliberalism even without a state, um, where entrepreneurship and, and private property and private trade would be, as Felix explained, uh, the entire uh, uh, basis of the, the system. And the reference points then of this American uh, libertarianism are not Kropotkin, for example, but uh, also very little known in, in, in Europe, but like a household name for everyone in, in America, Ayn Rand, uh, a Russian-American um, um, uh, writer, uh, novelist, and, and ideologist who um, came up with this uh, heroic idea of the of, of the businessman. I surely really should say man here in this case because the the, the uh, heroes of her books are all male. That kind of overcome all the the obstacles that are uh, artificially imposed uh, by. Uh, mostly the state uh, and by bureaucrats, uh, by kind of um, realizing their entrepreneurial dreams. And then, then people like Steve Jobs or uh, Elon Musk, they, they are the heroes of, of that, that uh, cyber libertarian uh, culture. They're also uh, partly part of it, or at least Elon Musk has, has quite, quite some, some overlaps in his, in his uh, own uh, thinking and work with uh, cyber libertarianism. Um, and it's it's a really influential ideology in Silicon Valley. Yeah, There's, uh, many Sil Silicon Valley uh, people and also CEOs uh, subscribe to that. It's it goes to 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 the point also where you, for example, say, yeah, we have to create our own states, our own states uh, uh, that are like safe havens, seasteading, yeah? and that again has overlaps with hacker culture. So hacker culture also has a kind of traditional affinity with libertarianism. And uh, that makes it so difficult to, to, to discuss this whole topic. Yeah. And, and you could say, indeed, cryptocurrencies were, came exactly out of that culture. They, they're really a kind of um, political product uh, out of that cyber libertarian hacker culture who said, yeah, we have to create a sort of money that is 
peer-to-peer, -peer, you know, um, um, and independent from the state, uh, and that cannot be manipulated, uh, that cannot be uh, uh, inflated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, the second, since, since we at the kind of origins of libertarianism in this American sense, kind of the second big uh, source is, is, of course, neoliberalism and, and Hayek. And this idea that the market as a quantitative system of prices is a perfect um, kind of representation of decentralized uh, desires and capacities and interests. And from that uh, decentralized uh, capacities and desires and interests, uh, something like a spontaneous order would emerge if just this decentralized expression uh, would be allowed. And, 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 and the medium through which these expressions were made were price signals. And the more you could attach price signals, the less need you would have for other forms of social coordination, which according to Hayek necessarily, you know, as he famously put it, you know, put you on the road to serve them because whoever does the coordination knows less than the sum of all the decentralized actors. So they have to impose their imperfect knowledge on people who know more and know better. And that needs repression. So these two things kind of come, come together. But the funny thing is, um, you could say um, there are two ideologies who took their main inspiration in the economic politics from Hayek. Um, and they often call it then the Austrian school of economics, um, which is really a kind of simplification because there's much more in Austrian economics than just uh, uh, Hayek and, and uh, Mises. Um, um, and uh, and th these two schools were on the one hand libertarianism, we described it, but on the other hand, neoliberalism. What we know as neoliberalism today is actually a political uh, ideology that... that um, is based on, on the ideas of um, Hayek and then Milton Friedman. But, and that's the kind of contradiction, the monetary system that was installed in the early 1970s was actually also installed based on the ideas of uh, Friedman, was ba based on the ideas of the neoliberal uh, economists, because we had a gold standard uh, before the 1970s, the Bretton Woods uh, system, uh, fixed exchange uh, rates between currencies. Um, and uh, uh, based on the gold standard. And then Nixon, uh, the, the Nixon administration decided that this was stifling economic progress and that you should actually create a free market for currencies. And that led uh, to the fact that uh, basically currencies were completely decoupled uh, from fixed exchange rates, also from the gold standard. Um, and with the idea that the only thing uh, that um, uh, the state via central banks that would be even independent from the state should do is regulate the interest. Right? Um, that, that would be the, the only uh, the major instrument of financial regulation. Now, funnily, this is a neoliberal idea by the more or less the same economists that are now being taken as models by the cyber libertarians who uh, invented cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin as a counter model to the free exchange course decoupled from the gold standard uh, model. So this is also a contradiction. 
but you also have like a fetishization of this kind of distributed uh, uh, networks and of this flat area hierarchies like coming from the left you know like especially from uh, you know like uh, post-structuralism the laws uh, you know like all these questions of like the rhizome and the like, yeah, and it's, this is also why a, a lot of people, you know, from 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 kind of left wing activist uh, 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 subcultures. I don't want to drop any names here, but they also um, ended up in the Bitcoin camp because they said, "Yeah, it's it's like it's it's the anarchist peer to peer community oriented uh, 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 money, etc." Yeah, and that's the open source money. Yeah. I mean, the, the, these are the contradictions also of um, you could say the, the kind of internet activist open source free software movements that were kind of significant or that, 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 that kind of were part of the DNA from the, the early beginnings. But is it the contradiction? Because I, I always thought that this team of white flight, for instance, was already present in the new communalist movement, you know, like kind of like uh, leaving society and like going to uh, found some communities in the mountains uh, precisely in the moment when the civil rights movement is exploding. So, of course, like this was already a little bit uh, imbricated uh, in the ideology since its beginnings. Yes and no. I, I think it it comes from a quite you know justified uh, critique of kind of you know the Fordist state. Uh, also a critique of, you know, military industrial complex and all of that, right? And that led, at least in the in the new left, to a to a quite a, a profound aversion to institutions, right? And uh, that created all kinds of avenues for, you know, what do you want to replace it with? And perhaps the the avenue that that or, or, or the, the trajectory that came to dominate was the free market trajectory. Let's get rid of institutions. Everybody, you know, see everyone as an entrepreneur in the open market. Uh, that that's kind of the uh, you know kind of how the, the let's say you know Thatcher Reagan uh, right managed to to kind of harness that that deep general feeling coming out of the 1960s and 1970s. But I don't think that's necessarily the only possible uh, you know, avenue or, or trajectory that this critique could have taken or actually has taken. So uh, just because it, it, it led to, um, you know, to, to this free market dominance and this, and, and this neoliberal politics, I don't think it's, it's justified to to say, you know, this this critique of of these in, institutional complexes uh, coming out of the post-war area was not justified, right? And I, th I think we should try avoid making this this uh, this argument that you know, let's say, um, uh, Potonsky and Chapello make in the new spirit of capitalism, saying basically it's the artists. Uh, who paved the way for for neoliberalism? I don't think that's 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 correct. But clearly, the other visions uh, that came out of that, and and you know, obviously, uh, also you know, quite radical other you know visions, also Black Panthers, and so were really kind of distrustful of the state and of the and you know 
stress the need to to create your own institutions all the way up to your own security institutions but obviously they were crushed and and their historical legacies has not been able to spread beyond the you know a fairly you know narrow and marginalized communities i think that the problem is that in the moment where you have something like a fundamental institutional critique where i totally agree with 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 felix that it's more than justified yeah um and especially in the arts uh, on, on on top of that not only in in uh, politics and the uh, economy then you really have to take care uh, who your bedfellows are yeah and and very often you can have something like tactical alliances or bedfellows strange bedfellows who come for example from the libertarian right or even from the extreme neo-fascist right um and uh, again we're currently seeing that in in, in the corona protests huh? what what kind of strange alliances you can have out of a distrust in, in institutions um and then, then also with with questions which probably are unanswerable but something like would yourself boys uh, today be part of an, uh, uh, a corona uh, skeptic uh, protest um <laughs> which is probably i think is a moot question you can't cannot answer it un unless you have a time machine or, or and, and can go into multiple parallel universes um but uh, um yes uh, but it's also a question of of uh, ideological uh, purity. Yeah? This is, I think, a, a general uh, a problem for any kind of critique, and also a, a, a general problem for any kind of activism. Uh, do you also need strange bedfellows in order to get stuff done? Yeah? So, for example, something like the open source and free software movement would not have got off the ground if it hadn't included all these strange bedfellows. Bedfellows, yeah. So, so if you have something like Linux or Wikipedia, Wikipedia was a, originally a, a cyber libertarian project, right? Um, uh, it came out of a, a, a study circle for Ayn Rand. I mean, how, how more libertarian can you get, right? Uh, so that is also a question then of, of ideological purity that we're dealing with. Sorry, I was going to say that you, uh, you know, a commonality, uh, you know, like between several of these movements that you've been mentioned is that, of course, like whenever you have this combination of elements that are both left and right or neither left and right, you know, like they also like op they also open up this ambiguous space, you know, like and they uh, in, we, within this ambiguous space, then like new types of movements will emerge. And uh, tendentially, or, you know, like maybe I'm just being a bit too fatalistic here, but uh, I think historically you could see, you can see that tendentially uh, they veer towards fascism, you know, like because uh, th there is something um, that is, that inheres in this kind of partial or distorted critique of capitalism that tends to always, uh, you know, like try to overall capitalism via fascism, not, you know, like via social democracy or socialism or communism or anarchism. Yeah, but but then um, I just mentioned Wikipedia, and I think Wikipedia is a very good example that it can also go the other way. So so this Wikipedia turned from an Ayn Rand uh, study circle into a project um, that now has uh, radical inclusivity um, and and even decolonizing trajectories within its own organization. Um, although I mean it's still a heavily biased and and, and problematic um, representation of knowledge and and. Uh, 
and also let's say a, a biased uh, participation that happens in the Wikipedia community, but at least it's self-aware of that. So, so you could say this is an example of something where the politics has quite substantially changed and uh, where you shouldn't have written it off. I mean, uh, nowadays you would probably say if, if something comes out of an rent study cycle, you have to write it off or it's, 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 it's toxic from, from the beginning, but that wasn't the case. Um, so that, that would be one very pragmatic answer, but maybe we should come back to the topic here of uh, NFTs and cryptocurrencies. I mean, here the big question is, is this whole system toxic from the beginning? Yeah? Can, can, is it, can it be rescued at all? Or, or do we have to say it's, it's something that you have to resist fundamentally? Or is there anything that uh, yeah, uh, um, actually is, is interesting or that can be used? Or is it just all a horror? Perhaps Felix can comment. Yeah, maybe we let's let's perhaps start with what a non-fungible token is, uh, because I think it's it's uh, important to to actually understand uh, the thing in order to 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 understand kind of the dynamics around it. So um, money. Let's say a coin, a, a 10 euro bill, is what is called a fungible token, which means that any $10 bill is equivalent to any other, you know, 10 euro bill. So there, there's no difference between two bills. And the non-fungible token is uh, a token that has no equivalence. So that that that's kind of a a, a unique object. Like a you know a work of art or a trading card or something where not all works of art, not all trading cards are the same. So you have to establish their value and their relative uh, relationship. So it's kind of a, a way of uh, kind of putting value on something that is unique, kind of an object. And the way that works in the digital sphere is that that you you say there is this object, let's say an, an image file, a GIF file, uh, located on this and that server or in, on this and that file system. And then you write a contract that says the owner of the contract is the owner of that file that is located this and you know at 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 this particular server, and this this gives him the right to claim exclusive ownership. Right. Well, sorry to interrupt. In most of the cases, actually not, and that's the problem. Well, this is why there's also critique of of, of the NFT trade because it doesn't. In most cases, it doesn't mean uh, ownership of copyright. It doesn't mean ownership of distribution rights. Yeah? In most cases, what is being sold as the NFT is like, I'm selling you a square mile on uh, the planet Mars. And, and, um, uh, and, and, and yeah, so, so, so it's a completely symbolic ownership in most cases, unless this is specified in the contract. But in most contracts, it's not specified. So, and this is what, what, what people pay, pay money for. And it gets worse um, because quite often it says you are, it kind of tries to mimic physical property. And it says you are the owner of that file 
that is located on this and that server. But if the server disappears, then kind of your ownership disappears too. So you become dependent on the owner of the server to which this contract points to. So people have started to call this also a kind of a long-term kind of extortion game. Because if you sit on, a, on an asset that costs, you know, whatever, a million, that, that, can, that has only a value on some other person's server, then you become dependent on that other person, uh, you know, keeping the server running and they can, you know, charge you any fees for that. But basically, uh, that's what it is. So, so you, you kind of claim a contractual ownership of something located at a particular place. And uh, that doesn't mean, yeah, you don't get get copyright. So anybody can copy that file and you know store it on their own server. Uh, but you can claim you are the owner of of kind of the original copy. So it's a totally nonsensical term that creates this scarcity and says this copy is more original than the other copy. It's kind of the the opposite of what. Kind of digital culture has been doing for the last 30 years, saying, you know, the, the ability of infinite, um, uh, uh, you know, copying this destroys scarcity and creates a non rivalrous uh, uh, kind of, of, of resource. And here, scarcity is reintroduced, uh, originality is, or the, the, this notion of original copy is reintroduced. And it makes no sense. I mean, it is it is practically the equivalent uh, to also explain it to listeners who are not at home in digital technology um, to let's say a product in a supermarket, yeah, that is being produced a uh, million times, like a Coca Cola bottle, um, and then it's not even let's say Andy Warhol who puts a signature on it goes into a supermarket puts his signature on the Coca-Cola bottle and says now it's an artwork and it's 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 worth a million but it's Coca-Cola company itself who says uh, we sell you a certificate that you are the owner of the uh, of uh, the Coca-Cola bottle as, as such um, but it doesn't have any juridical consequences you just get this kind of nice certificate of this trading card that that sells are the owner, the symbolic owner of the Coca-Cola bottle. That's basically what it is. And it's even it's even uh, worse, you could say, because the Coca-Cola bottle at least can only be manufactured by Coca-Cola. But in the case of uh, a digital image, anyone can copy it. So so uh, it can be infinitely copied uh, without uh, costs. So so that 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 is uh, makes the, the the relation even more absurd than than the example of the Coca-Cola bottle in the supermarket uh, rack. Yeah. So for me, the the question. So for me, the question becomes uh, here: the notion of property is applied to something that clearly doesn't work in these categories. So uh, it's clearly not property that you create. The question is: what is it then? Right? If it's not property, and then there, there's basically different things it could be. One thing that I think a lot of it is, but not all, is basically a kind of a, a currency Ponzi pump and dump scheme. So you, you create value, 
for others to buy into a system that when then others buy into the systems, you can cash out as the person who, you know, went in early. The classic uh, uh, kind of strategy. And a lot of that is, I mean, and that's that's also a parallel to the high-end art market. Uh, Florian mentioned Damien Hirst, um, who famously sold, uh, you know, the last auction he did before the financial crash in 2008, famously, you know, raised 100 million pounds for for a group of his works. And it was later revealed that, you know, the people buying it was basically a consortium of people, uh, you know, consisting of Damien Hurst himself and his gallerist and, and others. So this was cle clearly kind of a financial manipulation system um, where the auction houses provided uh, a veneer of, of, you know, legitimacy, right? Because it, it was Christie's or Sotheby's, I can't remember. And so this must be real. And in a way, this is the same we have now with some of the, of the uh, NFT uh, auctions. The most famous one uh, that netted like uh, almost 70 million uh, euros worth of ether uh, you it came out quite soon afterwards that the buyer and the seller were actually the same person or this the, were entities controlled by the same person so this was it's a classic uh, way of of simply attracting attention attracting uh, uh, interest not so much in the work itself but in the kind of speculative fund that owned the work. So now you could also buy into that fund. That fund had made just made a spectacular uh, uh, profit. So you could hope that the next time you would be part of that profit by buying into that fund. So this is clearly, I think, straightforward uh, Ponzi scheme. But I don't think it's all. Maybe we can go more into details. Also, uh, I mean, I know it's getting a little bit abstract and complicated, but uh, Felix uh, before explained this um, concept of the non-fungible token, uh, which is basically the same as an autograph or you know um, a collectible uh, unique objects, and therefore very similar to art. Now, the thing is that with this particular cryptocurrency of Ethereum or ETH, you have both types of tokens. You have type uh, tokens that are non-fungible, so like coins or um, bills, uh, where it doesn't matter, uh, as Felix explained, whether you know you have the, the one $10 bill or the other uh, $10 bill. Um, and then you have another type of tokens, which are these kind of unique trading card autograph uh, uh, type, type of tokens. And what happened here is actually is that a crypto investor who had a portfolio of these fungible tokens, so the, the kind of uh, non-unique, non-autograph uh, tokens, um, took these tokens to pay for the artwork which then actually, and the artwork itself is 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 uh, non-fungible tokens. So what he actually did, he's converted one type of tokens into a, to another type of tokens. This is what actually happened in this trade, uh, and you can basically also forget about this uh, uh, reported number of sixty million. Um, this is like I would say an almost fictitious uh, 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 number. Um, it's just the kind of shuffling of assets within a. 
um, investment funds from from one type of uh, crypto tokens into another uh, uh, type of crypto tokens. But by doing this, just as as uh, Felix explained, you actually create a hype and increase the value of these new type of tokens. So it's like it's almost alchemy. No, it's like uh, you you take you take scrap metal and 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 you melt it into gold. Right. That that's that's what happened here in this trade. Yeah. I know it's it's a little bit complicated and 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 uh, to to understand because what is different from from the Damien Hurst uh, trade is that now um, the artwork and the money uh, are the same thing are the same medium. Yeah, it's not you pay dollars for an artwork and then maybe your, the artwork also becomes a commodity that that has a kind of uh, exchange value, um, but uh, you pay with crypto money for an artwork that itself is another type of crypto money. And by that, you, in, in, you increase the value of that other type of crypto money. So this is how you have a kind of magical act of, of uh, increasing, at least on a speculative basis, uh, your assets within your investments funds. Right? Yeah, it's, it's really alchemy. I mean, it's, it's, it's finally, we could say, the, the old utopia of uh, turning sand into gold. <laughs> it, it has happened. Uh, and and that, 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 of course, is, is possible in, in the very moment where, you know, that, that gold has, has, uh, has, has its supposed digital equivalent in the form of cryptocurrencies. And that... With, with the large numbers, even if they're fictitious, they, they create kind of a psychological vortex, uh, just generate a kind of a tsunami of speculation, right? If they can make 70 million, then maybe I can make you know, 70,000 uh, with my little uh, thing. And, and that's a large part how cryptocurrencies have worked over the last years to, to create these incredible speculative frenzies that you know then it eventually burst and and you know recreated somewhere else but i think that I mean, that's probably the main kind of economic driver but i think there's also uh, you know what i what i mentioned before with the, the kind of the flattening of social relationships i think there's there there's also a genuine desire to be part of something and to express your 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 kind of your your value of something that you value something that you know these these you know crypto cats and and other things are part of your culture that you kind of like and the way you do that because we're in a fully neoliberal or the fully libertarian world is by buying and selling right there's no other way of expressing you know, an earlier generation, you know, would have uh, gifted a wing to a museum, right? And expressed their, their kind of relationship to a particular culture. But all of, of these expressions are, are gone now. That, that, that is not, no longer uh, part of the vocabulary. So all you do is, all you can do is buying and selling. So I think there's, there's more than... A, there's an excess that there's obviously these this financial dimensions that Florian just mentioned. I think there's an excess of that or to that. And, and kind of libertarianism leaves no language, no root for expression of that excess than just more money. So people expressing through money, 
things that they would perhaps otherwise express in through different means. And not just money, but also through the concept of, of private ownership, right? And, and private property, even though it's ludicrous, it doesn't fit at all, but it's the language that this culture gives you in order to express your desires, which is, I, I find incredibly sad. Yeah, but but maybe I can also see the, the upside of it, or it's something that I find interesting, and that's that's what you already yeah, pointed at, or, or actually um, um, highlighted in the beginning of your statement, Felix. Namely, I think you know we both work at art schools, and we also have a let's say a non-economic interest in art. What I really see here, and uh, yeah, I'm curious whether I will be proven wrong uh, on the long term is maybe a really significant uh, kind of break in aesthetics. Um, um, what we see here is actually we have a new generation of art buyers. Yeah, I mean, okay, you can have all kinds of critical remarks on how these trades are now being done, but the fact is this is an art market, this is happening. But um, the art they are buying is basically, you could say it's memes or things that come out of the popular visual culture of the internet, which is like a complete break. It's a complete break with the modernist and contemporary art uh, uh, um, aesthetic um, and, and language that had been established uh, in the 20th and early 21st century. Um, and I wonder whether this is significant. Uh, it's it's uh, in, It would not be the first time that there is such a kind of aesthetic break. So for example, um, uh, for uh, contemporary art, even modern art, there was hardly a market uh, uh, till the 1990s. Um, um, in the end, it was always, you know, it's rich people buying art and, and the taste of rich people uh, uh, defines also which kind of art um, uh, gets high prices and, and is desired. Uh, and uh, till the 1980s, it used to be ma mainly impressionist paintings. Uh, um, impressionist paintings um, up to Van Gogh uh, were getting the millions in the, the, the auctions of Christie's and Sotheby's. And then this changed, um, and that was exactly the kind of break with um, the uh, YBAs, the young British artists like Damien Hirst, um, that uh, uh, suddenly contemporary art, and you could say a more kind of popular form, uh, a pop art um, legacy of, of, of uh, contemporary art going from Andy Warhol uh, via Jeff Koons to Damien Hirst, then suddenly uh, became the thing on the art market. But now we also have new money on, uh, in the world, right? I mean, we, we now have the, uh, the the billionaires of today are no longer, let's say, the old families, the old rich families, but they are Silicon Valley uh, entrepreneurs, um, the billionaires who, who made their money in the tech industry. Uh, and they are spending their money probably if they spend it on art at all but if they do then then probably on something that that comes from from the internet visual culture and probably doesn't have any real uh, connection anymore to that you know, modern art contemporary art fine art tradition but comes much more from popular visual culture from illustration comic books memes etc etc so I really wonder about the impact about uh, this. I mean, I I already said, you know, if, if I would, would have to give a, a student of mine, a first year student uh, advice uh, who wants to make it in the art market as a commercial artist, I would say, don't study fine art, study illustration or st study animation, um, if, if this is the trend. 
true, but uh, is there a real break there? Because uh, what one could also say that you know most of this aesthetics, and you know, like I'm happy that you brought up the question of the aesthetic because I really feel that here things become really concrete. If most of these aesthetics can oscillate between Andy Warhol and Arnold Brecker, is because like the contemporary art audience has already been trained in this misrecognition of like affirmation as critique, right? Of course, you also have uh, all of these meaning production devices like pastiche, like mimicry, like over-identification uh, that uh, you can also trace back several generations and uh, that also are very much being uh, reactivated now uh, in this uh, uh, non-fungible tokens that are being traded. Okay, then, then uh, let me tra play the devil's advocate and uh, uh, turn the perspective around. Um, uh, if you look at, at the NFT trade and the kind of um, art that, that's getting uh, bought um, and in relation to what's established as contemporary art, I don't know, um, on a documenta, uh, on a contemporary art biennial or in, in the Eflux journal or whatever, um, then I would say there, there are several points that are interesting um, and also point at, let's say, the shortcomings of the established contemporary art systems. Number one, it's no longer white cube art. Um, and and uh, in contemporary art uh, discourse, uh, we almost had a kind of uh, reactionary reinstation of the white cube uh, exhibition paradigm since the 1990s. Um, and even, you know, philosophies of contemporary uh, art like Peter Osborne, who even stated more or less that something is only contemporary art if it's in the white cube. Um, and uh, so that is an interesting break. I mean, this is, is also what experimental uh, uh, art uh, and non-institutional art movements have tried since the 60s to break up that, that, that paradigm, right? The other point is also uh, the, the hegemony of a Western model of artistic autonomy and uh, the hegemony of, of a Western aesthetic. I mean, even what gets shown, uh, made um, uh, as contemporary art in non-Western countries is made mainly as an export of, of, of a Western aesthetic. Um, uh, and, and most of the, the uh, contemporary artists working, let's say, in the system of the biennials, etc., uh, in non-Western countries are trained at Western schools. Um, whereas uh, the meme culture of the internet for example, has really strong, strongly influenced by by, by Asian virtual culture. Um, uh, I mean, uh, boards like like 4chan, they they started as copies of Japanese manga boards. Uh, uh, this this comes from a different uh, tradition. It comes also from a tradition that doesn't have the the Western um, division between fine art and applied arts, or of uh, fine art and illustration, fine art and, and design. So these are all things uh, where. I think you know whatever you think of the NFT uh, phenomenon, um, there there are also interesting takeaways uh, uh, for the understanding of art and and very urgent questions that need to be be uh, put on the table. I think it's true that it has like uh, uh, or it it can uh, absorb certain non-Western influences, but I feel that there is like a very white arc. Uh, to this uh, visual aesthetics or to this like uh, um, aesthetic ideologies, how I would put it. Mm. Yeah, of course, also because uh, it's very much an aesthetic that like all meme aesthetics uh, is, is, let's say, a kind of derivative uh, a product of you know, uh, creative industries production. You know? 
in the end, every meme can be traced back to, I don't know, a Hollywood movie, a popular TV show, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's, and, and then it's like this kind of third, second hand thing. And in a way you could say, okay, then, then in a way we, we, we're talking about a new pop art phenomenon in, in the same way that, for example, Andy Warhol um, used images that were not original creations, but recycled, uh, mass produced, uh, mass circulated images. Um, yes, yes, yes. Um, on the other hand, um, I mean, if, if I were to make a, Mark, yeah. No, I was just going to say that I see it very much like as in the logic of Andy Warhol and the aesthetic of Arno Brecker. Yeah. But you know, the reason why I'm a little bit hesitate, uh, in here to, to let's say fully embrace that, that, um, um, that critique is, it reminds me both the phenomenon of the kind of art or the kind of aesthetic that is now being hyped and traded through NFT. Um, and the critique reminds me of uh, the situation in music almost exactly 100 years ago. Yeah? So um, when jazz and other forms of popular music came up and, and challenged the hegemony of an established kind of Western classical music system, and, and, and then you had critics like Adorno coming from critical theory, right? Kind of bashing this it, as, as this kind of totalitarian uh, uh, industrial and also crypto fascist uh, production. We know what is, what's wrong with it. Uh, so so if, if we look at how music developed in the 20th century, uh, which became a much more diverse, complex affair, and um, uh, where, you know, the, the, the whole kind of critique of commercialism has been very harmful um, uh, uh, and even racist in, in, in some cases, um, uh, whether this shouldn't be reenacted now against what is now developing as a contemporary visual culture that is also being traded as art. Yeah? And, and my expectation personally is that the kind of same diversification um, of aesthetics that we had in music in, since the beginning of the 20th century is now happening in visual culture and in art. And, and that's a good thing. But, but you have like a, a, a racial dimension to uh, all of this field in any case, because for instance, like if you look at the critiques that were, uh, you know, like the critique of the last documenta, for instance, uh, was, uh, and also like of the last Berlin Biennial, was very much revolving around this question of the contemporary. So basically they were being accused of not having contemporary art or not being representative of contemporary art. And this is because there's a denial of coevalness. So basically, you know, like the experiences of people in the global south because they don't express themselves through technological means are not seen as like contemporary. You know, like they're seen as like backward, outmoded. And uh, so, I mean, I, I'm... I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying that, you know, like there's perhaps like uh, different facets to this question. Yeah, and, and it remains complicated. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same discussion that you had with, with uh, popular music uh, uh, in, in the 20th century, yeah? where it is also not, let's say, where the, it was unfortunate often that, let's say, uh, critical theory could only think of it in a binary way as, as something to condemn or something to embrace. Um, and and 
uh, and even the 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 embracement then then could could uh, lead to its own kind of reactionary forms i mean just look for example we are in germany i mean uh, think of of the whole kind of uh, to, uh, uh, generation of academics that has profiled themselves as a kind of pop cultural academics like norbert boltz um, or also journalistic uh, 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 writers um like um Oh God, I, I keep forgetting his name. Um, uh, with Poshart, with Poshart, yeah, who are now firmly on the kind of uh, reactionary, libertarian, or even extreme right, uh, uh, and and uh, yeah, that, that that is that is part of it. And and also, I mean, if if you also look at the origins, for example, of of uh, image boards in Japan and and the manga and anime culture, also is already very nationalistically uh, tinted in in that country. Yeah? Um, so uh, it doesn't mean that, that let's say, uh, uh, we are getting into something better or, or something that is less problematic, um, but something that I think should be taken seriously as a paradigm shift. Yeah, I, I mean, I also see this as a, as a kind of a cultural expression of a, of a rising elite. Right. This is on the one hand kind of the the extremely wealthy, uh, you know, billionaires and millionaire class that made their money through technology, but also a vast, uh, you know, service class to them, right? Including all the graphic designers uh, that are you know, put out by universities around the world. So I, I would not, I think there's, a, there's a, a really strong class dimension to it, but I, I don't think it's a, it's a kind of this rising class and the service class that, that underpins it is a purely Western phenomenon, right? So there are lots of uh, contributing, um, there's a very strong Asian, there's a very strong Chinese, uh, Japanese, uh, element to it. Uh, there's a very strong Philippine element to it. I mean, an incredible number of, uh, you know, designers are, are being put out uh, there as well and and in other other places uh, as well. Right. So I and and then there are there are certain still Western uh, institutions like Christie's that kind of give that uh, a certain, you know, old money uh, feel and legitimacy and all of that, and they they are clearly you know selling off their cultural capital. The only thing they do is provide uh, a, a kind of a, a, a high culture proof you know stamp of approval, and that for that they get in the case of the uh, people um, transaction you know nine million dollars. So, so, so we have this, but, but I really uh, would agree there with uh, Florian that it, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of a cultural expression, also an aesthetic expression of a, of a class of people and uh, you know, generational experience that is not exclusively Western anymore. And, and uh, I don't know whether that makes it in any way better, and it's certainly not a democratization of, of access to art now that you can sell it for millions. I, I, I always find that a totally ludicrous uh, argument. Uh, access to art uh, was the same before. 
but it's it's clearly another class of people. Well, that's one thing, right? Yeah, uh, I agree with that. Uh, but there's also this is part of the kind of speculative game that's going on here. I mean, the promise of the buyer of that Beeple uh, uh, artwork is to actually split it, yeah? to to basically to create derivatives. And this is something new on the art market. Huh? So since since the art market uh, only used to uh, uh, deal in traditional properties for most of the time, it actually meant that ownership was always one-to-one. -one, yeah? So one owner, one, one work. And this is exactly what, what even, you know, if you tentatively accept that very ludicrous concept of ownership of, of uh, the NFTs, but let's, let's accept it uh, just for, for a minute, um, then the idea is, of course, that just like as with derivatives on other markets, you can split them up and, and, and turn them into um, yeah, investment uh, assets that you can sell to others and also at small prices. And that's the so-called, that's the kind of libertarian democratization, right? Uh, you, you create penny stocks from, from, the, from, from the NFT that you bought for a few, few uh, yeah, I don't say millions, but uh, ten thousands of uh, uh, ETH, not, not uh, really. It wasn't, the deal wasn't done in dollars or in euros. It, it was done in, in the cryptocurrencies. Um, so that, yeah, that, that is the old, old kind of um, capitalist promise, right? Everyone a stakeholder and a shareholder. I think it's really important to kind of come back to the, the Ponzi element in it. And not just the, the, the way we talked about it before, but also, I mean, in a world of, you know, climate change, of, of kind of catastrophic breakdown of... Um, uh, you know, the, the natural environment, it's the most ludicrous way of using energy that you can possibly imagine, right? So that, that there's another um, kind of uh, really problematic level of abstraction in here, that all of that doesn't matter, right? It's, it's, it's this continuous uh, idea of this being... Uh, an immaterial economy that is uh, free of all constraints, and uh, that that uh, you know this 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 feedback loop to, to to a material reality has been broken, and you can invent any kind of of future that you want. And I think part of that really uh, makes me hope and expect that to break apart to you know to that bubble to burst simply because it's it's not just financially so unsustainable but also and perhaps primarily so ecologically and it's it's the worst possible use of of energy uh social energy but also kind of energy energy or computational resources that you can imagine it's really unsustainable on all levels how would you see it breaking apart or bursting? Because, uh, you know, like the since 2008, you know, like with all this quantitative easing and the uh, excess of liquidity that it created, uh, you don't really have any reason for this bubble to burst. I mean, uh, there are some numbers that, that suggest that it's already bursting. So um, there has been an article on Hyperallergic uh, that uh, says that the average price of uh, NFT collectibles has already dropped from uh, 4,300 to 1,400 in, in, in the past uh, couple of weeks and months. 
Yeah? So, so the, the, the hype is already uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, not over, but at least um, it's, it's decreasing. But um, yeah, but I, Anna, I think what you're, um, what you're addressing here is, let's say, the bigger picture. Because what we have right now is is, is a kind of flight into assets, right? and um, uh, also I think needs to be unwrapped and explained. I mean, there is a kind of large uh, scale fear among yeah uh, investors, uh, uh, people who save money uh, in the world that that we are facing a, a period of hyperinflation. Right and and uh, hyperinflation also through the Corona crisis and and this is why why the Bitcoin price has been going up yeah because people are fleeing into Bitcoin as as an asset um, uh, um, as something that whose value cannot depreciate um, at this moment because everything everything right now is like yeah it flux yeah and and even I mean we we had the fleeing into alternative assets already after the first financial crisis of two thousand and nine uh, which caused the bubble in the housing market. But then you can ask yourself also, you know, for example, uh, yeah, is, 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 is that bubble now over or is it sustainable at all? For example, here where I live in the Netherlands, you can say all the, the real estate uh, projects are almost as ludicrous as NFTs because um, the, the country will likely go under in 100 years. So, so where is the sustainability of your, your investment if you're building um, uh, real estate for, for millions? Uh, of euros, um, so that has to do with it, and so these N the, this NFT market came just at the right point yeah? um, as as this kind of escape route for capital. Yeah? Um, so where where do you move your capital? Where do you move your assets? And and what is promising you stability or even value increase? And uh, yeah, that's that's why it happened at the moment. Means, uh, you know, like not only you have negative interest rates, but now you also have the rumors that uh, deposits will not be guaranteed in case of a new financial crisis. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so basically, uh, you know, like for me, the question would be, uh, I, I don't see it bursting. Uh, of course, it can fluctuate. Uh, but a bit like cryptocurrencies, it just uh, it doesn't seem to be bursting anytime soon because, of course, like macroeconomically speaking, the conditions are there for it to just continue to increase. Yeah, and I think it, I mean, one particular bubble might burst at the expense of another one being created, right? And uh, that's true, but I don't, also don't think it's it's going to burst before the actual kind of externalities of energy are priced in, right? I mean, the moment it you you have to account for the CO two that the coal burning mine is producing in order to to uh, you know mine your cryptocurrency, uh, then you can continue this fantasy of this being a weightless, uh, purely in you know immaterial economy, and um, and as long as you can do that, you you can shift the, the way that Florian said the, the assets around. The question of Saudi Arabia dumping the oil prices, and of course that also creates an incentive for like this uh, uh, Bitcoin economy to thrive, because the energy prices have been at the lowest since like decades. Yeah. 
But if, if you are looking at, I mean, there is, let's say, the, the kind of same discussion as uh, with the financial uh, markets and the so-called Tobin tax. Hmm? Um, create a tax on transactions in order to limit speculation and prevent bubbles. And you could say if, if there would be um, you know, a CO2 tax on, on, on uh, the energy that is now being wasted uh, for these cryptocurrencies, then, then uh, you would have a halt on this whole speculative system. They market themselves that way, right? They say that they offset their, uh, you know, like they uh, offset their uh, um, uh, ecological costs with their, like, uh, uh, carbon. Yeah, but, but if, if you look at these uh, carbon uh, uh, compensation schemes, uh, you can read some, some critical papers on it, then most of it is bullshit. Uh, so that, that is very questionable whether this is already happening. Yeah, that's, that's pure greenwashing. I mean, it's, it's, it's fundamentally the, the notion of proof of work, right? That you have to make unnecessary extra work in order to create scarcity. That's, that's baked into the system itself. And that's exactly my dystopian fear that actually pricing in the, the environmental cost would only drive up the value of it. Um, that would create more scarcity. So, um, yeah, this, this could really result in a kind of race to the bottom. Plus, yeah. there is really an incentive uh, also for countries, and you already see that happening. So, for example, with a country like Iran uh, offering ex extremely low uh, energy prices uh, for, for Bitcoin miners, um, yeah, to, to kind of compete uh, uh, in a race, uh, race to the bottom um, um, for, these, for these markets to, to, to be in their own territories. It's exactly the same thing that happened also with taxation, right? Uh, the race to the bottom of countries to um, offer zero taxation to companies um, and, 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 and then, yeah, create this, this neoliberal competition. So, yeah, I must say I'm not very optimistic about that. Could we perhaps also touch upon the topic or the theme of like uh, uh, neocolonialism, like digital neocolonialism? Yes, I mean, of course, uh, you only have to look at the at the energy aspect of it, right? I mean, that basically answers it. Where is the energy coming from? Um, um, who is that energy being created? Um, where are the resources coming from for the computers in 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 the uh, in the data centers uh, that do the mining? Yeah. Where are the the where of minerals coming from? They're coming from 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 uh, countries like Congo, etc. Right, and uh, and then you see you you're in a very old economy. Uh, it's it's not a new economy at all. It's 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 the old economy of um, global trade and resource ex extraction that that is necessary in order to keep the system running at all. Yeah, I mean if you if you again take take the the this famous NFT uh, auction and, and look at the chain of transactions all the way from you know the energy of mining to to uh, kind of the where the minerals come from and then where the symbolic uh, you know value was created and accrued you know at at uh, uh, Christie's uh, that's not fundamentally different from any other extractive economy. What I think is is slightly different or has the potential to be slightly different, is that this colonial relationship is no longer uh, one that you can easily uh, graph across, you know, along central periphery, right? Um, this, this kind of uh, colonial dominance is now also one that happens kind of within 
countries. So, so certain parts of China have a colonial relationship to themselves. And uh, the, the same is true in the West. Not necessarily here in, in, in this case, but if you take the, the broader kind of data economy, then it's clear that this has a, a, a colonial dimension that is also internal. Uh, so the, the, I, I don't think colonial relationships have changed and there's a strong still ongoing, and you see it's particular also on the, on the question of the raw materials uh, and the energy. This is still a very strong south-north uh, or north-south dimension to it, but uh, there are more, there, there are also de decentralized or delocalized kind of colonial relationships that cut across this, this kind of old colonial geography, so to speak. This uh, culture where all relationships are financial relationships and we can express value only by buying and selling. And uh, in a way, I, I find this is, it has reached kind of a point where it becomes utterly absurd and utterly unsustainable. Now you, you press this model of, of kind of individual, you know, private property onto things that clearly don't have this property form. And I'm never, I mean, in a way, this is, you know, all bad. But on the other hand, it also kind of totally devalues the notion of property per se, right? So you, you're, you're now supposed to feel as a property owner of something that you clearly have no property over. And all the things that usually associate with property, uh, exclusive control and all of that are gone. So it's, a, it's really a, a, a kind of a layer of abstraction of property that becomes so fictitious that this fictitiousness that is always kind of embedded in property relations becomes kind of overwhelming. And that I kind of like. That's kind of my, my, my hope that, that it devalues the notion of, of pro private property to a degree that it becomes unthinkable also in other relations or in other areas. In, in other words, property is eating itself, literally. Yeah, yeah kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For instance, Jean-Joseph Bouy says that uh, what the market economy does is to always resignify insolvent desires and replace them by solvent desires. So in a way, this logic is not a new logic. And, and you know, it, it hinges again on exchange value. I mean, as long as the exchange value is there, yeah. Um, if, if, for example, I mean, to, to take a really simple example, if you, you have your NFT token and you can, can convert it, I don't know, into the college education of your kids, right? As long as this is possible, uh, then property is not eating itself, but is re really is, is stays in power, very literally. So it, 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 uh, it, it doesn't get disempowered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no. As long as it works, it works. But I wonder whether the, the layer of absurdity or the, the degree of absurdity becomes at some point so high that it stops working. But sure, as long as it works, it works. It's a problem of conversion. As in, it's not the, the problem is not 
whether this property is abstract to the point of it becoming absurd. It's the problem of like whether it will become unconvertible. Yeah, and but you know, if if historically we look back, you could could say, well, um, the same concern could have been raised when money was transitioned from metal to paper, right? You can also say paper is absurd. Yeah, uh, so an NFT in a way is not more absurd than paper, aside from the fact that it has these in incredible uh, uh, generation costs. Yeah. And it's like it's like paper that is produced in a paper mill that burns like like uh, uh, thousands of liters of oils in order to produce a single bill. No, I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I mean, paper is is always uh, you know you always can pay your taxes in, which which is you know a very strong element to it. But it's it's like you know owning a scrap of uh, Fluxo's performance, where the the thing that you own. Is is kind of irrelevant to the meaning of the object or the meaning of the event, but somehow still gets taken as a valid stand-in because there's such a desire to have these, you know, these 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 objects that you can own and trade. So it's it's perhaps more like this. But I mean, this trade happened, right? It happened in the past, right? I mean, uh, you had conceptual artists and performance artists who, who sold certificates uh, which are very similar uh, conceptually to the NFT certificates that are being sold right now, right? Mm. Yeah, no, no, that that would indicate that it's not likely to to uh, crumble under the weight of its own, of its own absurdity. But isn't it that the value itself hinges on this like frontier narrative? You know the fact that it's clearly like pushing the limits on of something. It depends when the yeah at the moment, but when the new money turns into old money, right? Then you know why not keep that around the same way we keep opera houses around? Uh, Felix, you used um, the term of the Ponzi scheme, and I think again it's a term that we might, might need uh, to explain to listeners who might not be familiar with it. So uh, a Ponzi scheme is basically um, you know the, the, the kind of um, snowball uh, system um, where you create fictitious value, but you find you know two buyers, um, and then the first uh, person gets paid off, and they find two buyers again um, and to pay them off. But the the people who are at the end of the stick, they, they are the ones who get screwed. So that that is basically let's say how we have framed cryptocurrencies as this Ponzi scheme. But the point is um, that, and that's also what Anna said, uh, as long as the system is in some way convertible and uh, has some exchange value, you can of course divest into other assets, right? Um, um, as long as there's uh, this fluency, there's no problem. In, in a way, you could say what's happening right now, um, this kind of fictitious ownership, this is a kind of ownership that has been culturally established by the software industry. You know? What has Microsoft done what, uh, 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 as its business model? It also sold you a kind of fictitious ownership through selling you a license of a product that you didn't own. And Bill Gates now, well, I don't want to chime in with all the kind of Gilbert Bill Gates uh, conspiracy uh, myths, um, uh, but uh, what is not a conspiracy myth is um, he's now the biggest landowner um, of, of um, uh, uh, North America, namely of farmland. Uh, so he, he converted his, his assets into farmland and 
I would be surprised if that is not a kind of anticipation strategy for climate change and uh, future catastrophes. You know, uh, if if you're a smart investor, where do you where do you uh, invest in? And this this is some, will be a sought after property. So as long as you have let's say this this game going, and uh, as long as the money changes its hands, it will work. Yeah. So um, uh, so so in that sense, I would not say one form of money is more fictitious than the other form of money. Uh, and they're quite close to Josef Vogel and, 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 and his, his critique of, of uh, money as a, as a belief system. Uh, it's just a question of, of um, shifting or augmenting the belief system. And, and you could say, okay, uh, if, if you're now creating a whole kind of new uh, belief system, a new religion, right? And, and that, that um, creates... And uh, uh, a much bigger market, let's say, for for <laughs> spiritual uh, salvation. Um, uh, then you get inflation on the market, and and maybe some other market forces um, have to go bankrupt, bankrupt for the system to be viable. But I wouldn't count it off uh, right now, at, at this point. Yes, and if you say that it functions as a symbolic quantification of power, then, uh, you could say like uh, to uh, economists Bischler and Nitzan that said that basically capital uh, is this uh, organized power of the dominant uh, groups to reshape society in their favor. Yeah. And maybe the NFTs are just an, an expression of a new power that's coming up. And, and a power that has already been around, namely since the rise of the internet economy, but that hasn't manifested itself yet uh, in Christie's and Sotheby's and, and other forms of, of property ownership. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that for a long time now, there was always this um, critique of uh, kind of Silicon Valley money that they don't buy up, right? They don't create these, you know, private collections uh, none of the millionaire billionaires is really famous for, you know, buying art. And this was for a long time was the question, you know, uh, what do they do with that money on this symbolic level? And what does it mean for the art system if a, if a whole new rising, you know, class of super rich is no longer interested in, you know, in buying and selling art? But, uh, yeah, maybe that's that's the answer to that. But I'm really not sure because because the NFTs thing really is not restricted to to art in a in whatever way. I mean, you there's there's somebody who bought uh, the first um, tweet of Chuck Dorsey for two million dollars or two million whatever, right? And that's clearly something different. This is not about you know owning art, but it's for me it's much more about uh, a new class of people saying this is a, his, an important historical document. So it's another way of of uh, uh, organizing attention and organizing importance. So now that this is is uh, um, two million dollars, maybe we have to think about a, a decent archiving system for it. Right, that we never really had, that we always hoped a Wayback Machine would do for us, and clearly doesn't, or you know, it does it in a in an amazing way, but not in a very reliable one. Right, so 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 that there is there is something else going on that is that is neither Ponzi nor kind of art speculation, but a kind of of a new 
set of people signaling what is important to them in a strange way. In a way that, in the only way that they have is by attaching, by, by claiming a private property. Yeah, and you could say it's a shift in cultural capital. I mean, very classical in, in, in the way how Bourdieu and others have, have this, this described it. And yeah, and, and that's maybe maybe that's even better than what, what I uh, suggested earlier, namely the shift in aesthetics. Maybe that the shift in aesthetics is just, let's say, a part of that, that shift in cultural capital. And then there's this combination of monetary capital and even expressing itself in a new form of money plus cultural capital, plus aesthetics. It's all three of them. It's not only monetary speculation. That's a big part of it. But it's really also about a certain cultural capital, and that is done through a particular kind of aesthetic appropriate to that type of cultural capital. And therefore saying, you know, in, in, this, in this kind of, you know, it's financial, but it's kind of non-financial about, you know, our... You know, we are the ones that 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 claim history.